This week on Life and Faith. If I try being normal, you know, what is it like? Is there something to be said for all of these things which I've been busy trying to dismantle? Is there actually anything to recommend that I hadn't been seeing before because I'd taken it at face value that they were all just bad by definition? These are personalized devices that are optimized to make us feel attended to. The great challenge to any religious tradition is having power. For several years, the reality kind of lived up to the dream. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. And I have to say, I am quite excited to bring you this interview today. Mm, yeah, it's with Mary Harrington, who is a contributing editor of the online publication Unheard and the author of Feminism Against Progress. Now, this sounds like a very provocative title, <laughs> Justine. Now, you are something of a fan, though. I hear you talk about Mary Harrington in the office quite a bit. Yeah, and because I am a fan, I was very nervous to interview her. In fact, I did find that when we were in the transcription process and me trying to work out what to keep and what to cut, I had to frequently delete all these times that I said, uh, let me ask you this, like I needed to ask permission to, <laughs> to ask sure her a question. But she was very down to earth. And her thinking and research feels a lot to me almost like a companion piece to Tom Holland, the, the British historian. Um, Tom Holland gets a mention in this episode as well. And, you know, we've interviewed him for Life and Faith. And if he's looking at the ways that everyone is kind of Christian now, right, regardless of whether they happen to believe in God, then Mary, I would say, Mary Harrington is, among other things, exploring how technological developments like industrialization and the pill. Uh, we'll get into how she connects those two things. She talks about how those technological shocks in some ways have deeply shaped feminism, the female experience, male-female relationships. And I think we live downwind of what yeah. she's saying, that all these things have had incredible ramifications for how we've lived. And we may not be fully aware, um, as I was to discover, of myself. I think, though, Simon, you would really respond well to her work because you're really interested in expressive individualism, this idea that we should be free of all the things that constrain us so that we can be fully ourselves and fully free. And she's exploring how this plays out, I suppose, in modern life, in relationships, in feminism as well. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. Also sounds not without controversy. Oh, um, look, but, you, know, you know, yeah, it's life and let's faith. Just, uh, let's just go there and see what happens. Sure. So... Here it is, Justine Toe's interview with Mary Harrington. Mary, I apologise for the bad joke, but I want to say to you, Mary, Mary, you're quite contrary. <laughs> you are a feminist against progress. I think this needs some filling in. What do you mean by that? I mean, I, I lost faith in progress. I came to the conclusion that it is a faith and I didn't believe in it anymore. Um, when, when I say I don't believe in progress, I don't mean I think everything's getting worse. I mean, I think this structure of going from something to something else is baked very deep into the way we experience the world, so much so that it's pretty much in the cultural air. Um, but I came to the conclusion that I just didn't really believe it was happening in the sense that I couldn't see any way of convincingly 
showing that the net sum of improvement for the human species was any greater now than it was, say, a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago, and that some things had very obviously got better and some things had very obviously got worse. And really what we were looking at was a set of trade-offs um, where things had changed very obviously, very measurably. And really that's what we're looking at over the course of history is how, how things change um, in relation to everything else. But whether that added up to progress in any absolute sense, I, I found a whole lot less convincing because really the, the moment you set out to prove that, you have to define what you mean by progress. And the moment you've done that, you've, you've sort of rigged the debate in advance because all you've really done there is state what, you, what you're focusing on and what you've chosen to ignore, which is to say you've begged the question, you've assumed the truth of what you set out to prove. So can you give us an example of those trade-offs? It all seems pretty abstract in those terms, but I mean, to take a fairly non-contentious or um, not immediately contentious example. You know, you think about how we treat animals. You know, it's it's definitely the case that we're more explicitly concerned with animal welfare now than we used to be. You know, that's that's beyond doubt. Lots of people have pets. Lots of people are very sentimental about their pets and go to enormous lengths to ensure their well-being. But then you you, you weigh that against the emergence of factory farming and the barbaric cruelty which goes against that. You know, I, I struggle to see that actually in aggregate, where we're any kinder to animals than we were a thousand years ago, it's just that we've displaced the cruelty into a sort of industrialised, mechanised um, system that's well out of eye shot so that we just don't have to think about it. You know, we buy our, our ready butchered chicken off the shelf and don't think about the life that animal had um, and, and sentimentalize our pets. So I, I struggle to see that the net total of, of human compassion towards animals has actually improved. You might think that this is a this is a fairly bleak way of looking at the human condition or looking at human culture. I, I disagree. I think it simply removes the pressure to try and fit everything that we're looking at into a particular mould, which in turn, you know, as I've argued in the book, places a, a filter on what it is that we're looking at, which in turn sort of skews the political picture, makes some things stand out and obscures others, such that it's, it's possible to tell ourselves falsehoods about what we're actually doing. I think the idea of the belief in progress, which is it's really a sort of um, whitewashed Christian eschatology. I mean, I think- And I think what we'll, do you mean by that? I mean, it's a story about, you know, how, how we're moving toward the end times and the arrival into some state of greater human perfection. Um, it's just that we've taken God out of the picture and we've taken heaven out of the picture. We've taken death and judgment and heaven and hell out of the picture. And somehow all of this is meant to happen on earth. Why do you look at progress in theological terms? Why see it as a kind of religion? Well, I think it's a mistake to read the received liberal worldview that all of us, you know, in Britain as in Australia inhabit now as anything other than a direct, if you like, a heretical descendant of the Christianity which preceded it. You know, it retains many of its structural features. Um, it retains many of its values. It's just taken death, judgment, heaven and hell out of the picture and also God. And as such, you know, I, I think it's straightforwardly a kind of Christian heresy. I'm, I'm hardly the first person even really to argue this point. Tom Holland, the historian, wrote um, an absolutely masterful book on the history of Christian thought, Dominion. Um, an absolutely magnificent book where he makes, from a position of far greater historical erudition than I, I will ever achieve, makes that point very convincingly, that really where, where we are today and the value system we have today is a, is a direct, is a kind of Christian heresy. Um, and so, yeah, I think of progress theology as, as it's a continuation of Christianity by other means, just with all the, all the redemptive features sanded off. Now, Mary mentions Tom Holland here, and it reminded me of the way that Tom described how deeply shaped the West was and is by Christianity when we interviewed him a little while ago. 
I thought it was worth briefly revisiting that episode again because it was such a vivid image that he gave us there. So here he is, mid-sentence, as it were, describing the unacknowledged debt Western ideas owe to Christianity. One is to think of secular humanism, liberalism, whatever you want to call it, as a kind of payload on a rocket. And if you think of Christianity as the rocket, it's blasted it through the atmosphere and has secular humanism now, you know, it's got through the atmosphere, it doesn't need Christianity anymore. Can it disconnect from it? Will it be self-perpetuating, self-sustaining under its own power? I think that's that's Tom Holland from our interview with him a few years ago about his book Dominion. Secular liberalism or humanism, he says, is a kind of payload borne by the rocket of Christianity. Our ideas about progress, as Mary suggests, might be another kind of payload. Yes. Well, let's get back to the interview. All throughout Mary's book, Feminism Against Progress, she hints at a crisis in her personal life that happened in 2008, around the same time as the global financial crisis. This personal crash, as she calls it, meant that she lost her faith in progress. So I asked her what happened, and this is what she said. Very crudely, I was a fully paid up postmodern leftist, I guess, in my 20s. I did my best to to live that worldview as authentically as I could. You know, I'm one of these people who's unfortunately cursed to take ideas seriously and try and actually follow through on them, which has it has pros and cons. I'll just say that. You're aiming at integrity. That's not a bad thing. Well, you say that, but if you try and live postmodern ideas, if you, you try and enact them actually in the real world, you know, the result is interesting and I suppose you might say it is genuinely liberatory in in some senses, but it's also lonely and uncertain and emotionally harrowing, I think, a lot of the time, because it doesn't honour certain basic human needs for stability, for commitment, for affection, for knowing where you're going to be from one week to the next. Um, I don't know, maybe there are people who can flourish under those circumstances, but it turned out that I wasn't one of them. Um, And when you add to that the deep aversion to hierarchies and power, what you well certainly what I ended up with was a kind of a permanent state of, if you like, disorder in my personal life and paranoia in my outlook. I did read that your grandmother one day said to you, as you were living your postmodern liberated life, Mary, I think you should grow your hair and get married. And you laughed <laughs> it was at a, that. <laughs> yeah, it, it was funny, but it's actually good advice. I mean, it was it was a grandma way of saying, well, Mary, can you just be normal, please? <laughs> I think that's that's really what she was asking. And and actually, I mean, literally growing your hair and getting married is, is only, you know, there are m- many approaches to being normal. But the advice, you know, but have you considered just being normal was actually excellent advice. Because um, it turned out that actually, well, after the crash, which was a personal crash as well as a global financial crash, all the various things which I'd carefully, provisionally constructed for myself, my living situation, my work situation, and pretty much everything you care to name all sort of fell apart at once. In ways, I was deeply implicated in all the ways those fell apart. I came out the other side having lost the business I was working on, lost my best friend, lost really, lost everything. And it felt as though all of the things which I believed were going to make life better were pretty baked into why all of that had happened. Um, and so it just left me questioning everything which I thought was good and right and worth fighting for. And the advice, have you considered being normal? It felt like, you know, it's good a thing to try in the in the aftermath of that as anything else. So I did. I, I set about having a go at being normal. It, it was, I suppose, it must. It was a kind of thought experiment. You know, if I try, if I try being normal, you know, what is it like? Is is there something to be said for all of these things which I've been busy trying to dismantle? You know, is there actually anything to recommend that I hadn't been seeing before because I'd taken it at face value that they were all just bad by definition? And it turned out that the answer is sometimes yes. There's something to be said for 
all of the things which I'd reflexively dismissed as bad and wrong and oppressive. Um, not all of them, but the the thought process involved, you know, being in a stable long-term relationship, for example, showing up to the same job every day without becoming truculent and recalcitrant and um, uncooperative, which was, <laughs> I, honestly, I was unemployable in my 20s. At this point of chatting with Mary, I noticed a little girl edge her way into the room behind Mary. It was actually Mary's young daughter, and it was early in the morning in the UK when we spoke, so not far off breakfast time. So what happened was Mary rearranged her desk so that her daughter could sit next to her and colour in as we conducted our interview. And I tell you all of this because I think it's relevant. It actually adds a really interesting dimension to what we go on to talk about, limits. So I put it to Mary if progress theology drove her to push through as many limits as possible, did the recovery period mean embracing particular limits? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. If my approach up until then had been to reject limits as just by definition a bad thing, then I thought, well, which of these limits are actually worth something? You know, how does it feel to stay in the same place physically? How does it feel to create a home? That's consistently. How does it feel to commit to a relationship? How does it feel to commit to being perceived by others as pretty normal? How does it feel to to keep showing up to the same job? How does it feel to commit to a professional career? Perhaps most importantly of all, from the point of view of the book, was embracing the limits implicit in my physiology, um, which was always something I'd struggled with. You know, really struggled with at a very deep level. You know, what what does it mean to be perceived as female? What does it mean to be female? You know, what limits does that place, what expectations does that place on me? Now, I'd always deeply resented the idea that people might look at me and think, oh, she should be doing X and she shouldn't be doing Y on the basis of my sex. Um, I, that just seemed outrageous to me and had seemed so baked into a whole swathe of what was wrong with the world. Um, I mean, I lived in all female house shares in my 20s. And um, actually, I'm genuinely grateful for that time because it the, there was a sense of sanctuary that came with that. Although just as ironically, you know, having arrived at that single sex environment, of course, I set about subverting it. Because, um, <laughs> but I mean, th- th- this is this is exactly the sort of chronic contrarianism that I'm, I'm talking about, which left me in a state of personal and economic implosion in my late twenties. And I suppose the sort of basic commitment I set out to embrace was, you know, how about just being normal and then not subverting it? And it sort of worked. I mean, it's a bit paradoxically, it turns out that if you look normal, you can be a lot more eccentric under the bonnet without anybody really noticing. And actually, there's a lot to be said for that. And actually, it's fun. I mean, it turns out, as I discovered, that if you have kids, it's not as though you become some kind of bovine second-class citizen. This is also not true. In fact, it's a pernicious lie. People certainly perceive you in that way. I mean, I think if you spent any time as a primarily mumming, um, you'll know the experience of going to a party and have people look over your shoulder for someone more interesting. Very well. Yeah. You you know what I'm talking about. Ah, yeah, absolutely. Every every mum does. There are ways that how you behave limits how others perceive you. But in terms of your freedom to be yourself inwardly, I, I found that actually my mind was still my own. And in fact, imposing a measure of limitation on what I was doing and who I felt myself to be, you know, was more creatively fruitful than anything else. You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX. We are hearing Justine's interview with Mary Harrington who's a contributing editor at Unheard, where she writes a weekly column, and is also the author of Feminism Against Progress. So far, we've heard a little bit about the way Mary's life imploded in her 20s, 
and what it was like to rebuild her life and embrace certain limits. Now, one of those limits was motherhood. And as Mary writes in her column in the online magazine, First Things, to be pregnant is to be radically unfree. It is, and it's also to be radically not unseparate. You know, you're not really one person and you're not really two people. Yeah. Um, And being a kind of inveterate theorist, you know, a chronic theorizer of my own experience as I go along, it sent me down a very extended theoretical rabbit hole as well as the more immediate and warm and fuzzy and visceral personal rabbit hole of getting to grips with being a mum. But theoretically, it also raised some some challenges to a whole a whole series of more abstract things, which I previously believed. And the central of those was being more separate is always better, mm. which is pretty much the central unexamined belief of the liberal progressive order, the idea that more freedom is always better. And, and more freedom implies more separateness, more freedom from, including freedom from limits, freedom from the obligations imposed on us by other people, unless we've chosen them, mm-hmm. freedom from anything which might constrain our optionality at any time. And, you know, self-evidently being pregnant constrains that optionality in a thousand and one different ways. You can't eat what you want. Well, at least you not not if you want to ensure the well-being of your baby. You can't you can't really do what you want for the same reason. Um, and, that, and that goes on for a long time. I mean, it's it's still true. You know, you have a you have obligations to a dependent small person. You know, of course, you're somewhat constrained in what you do. But I sat and tried to make sense of that, and I thought, well, to the extent that mothers are physiologically much more they're bound to embrace constraint by virtue of our reproductive role, does it follow from this that we're just less well-fitted for progress than men? Does it just follow that we're less well-fitted for freedom and for all of the things which is, which I've been told are good and right? And I thought, well, no, I mean, this this is just BS. This doesn't seem to me to be a women problem. This seems to me to be a liberalism problem. And, you know, I reject out of hand the idea that, you know, we should just embrace being charming, compliant, support humans, as Rousseau suggested. I reject out of hand any ideology which structurally consigns women to second class. That just seems absurd to me. Um, and therefore, the, the thing which needs dismantling is not those ways in which women are different by virtue of our sex and reproductive role. What needs dismantling is, is the liberal belief system. Which... The liberal belief? Yeah, you want to take yeah. on the behemoth, don't you? Right. Well, but but I mean, you know, in what in what sense is that any less ambitious than trying to abolish biological sex? You know, I would say it's a much more modest goal. <laughs> Well, let me ask you this, because um, feminism feels very split over motherhood. And in the book, you kind of carve out, you've got team freedom on the one hand, uh, and Mm -hmm. then you've got team interdependence on the other hand. And when you just said right now that the liberal order seems founded upon male interests, I guess I want to ask you, you know, is the only way to be a woman in the world today, according to team freedom, that you almost need to be a man. You need to be as much of a man as it is possible to be. That's definitely strongly implied in a great many of the preconditions to things which are otherwise broadly culturally accepted. This idea that public life is by definition better than private life, that Mm. um, somebody with a a professional is by definition more interesting and exciting than a stay-at-home mum. The idea that, that freedom is by definition better than the restricted life of caring for dependent others, all, all of these things you know, implicitly would seem to suggest that actually if we want, to the extent that we want to be liberated, you know, women should aspire to be more like men, um, which seems, it seems short-sighted from the point of view of propagating the species and from the point of view really of honouring the multitude of different desires and capacities and um, longings and inclinations of really half of the planet's population. It seems short-sighted. 
Now, it's just me butting in here to tell you to buckle up, because here Mary is about to give us a whirlwind preview of what her book is about. Now, I do want to say, just let it wash over you. (laughs) But I do know that a whole lot of info is just going to come at you. So I thought it was worth mentioning three things to keep in mind so that we all can keep up. So number one, the first thing to remember is that Mary says feminism is always responding to technological developments. That's the most important thing to keep in mind, okay? Feminism is always kind of reacting to technological shifts. The second thing to keep in mind is that the first of those developments she's talking about is industrialization. So this shift to an industrial era that took work out of the home and sent people to work in factories in the 19th century. This causes massive social changes. And according to Mary, it also kicks off an extended discussion between two groups of female and feminist writers that Mary dubs Team Freedom, on the one hand, who are arguing for female emancipation, and Team Interdependence. And they're arguing that the work of care that typically happens within the home still matters. Okay, So that's just important to keep in mind. Now, the third thing to remember is that the second technological development that feminism goes on to respond to is the contraceptive pill, which for Mary signifies the triumph of team freedom. Hopefully that hasn't confused you more, but I think it'll be helpful to keep in mind as we hear Mary talk about this. Okay, here she goes. There's a whole history of back and forth between the the feminisms of care and of freedom, which was only really settled conclusively in favour of freedom in the 1960s by another tech transition. And really, I've argued that what was going on prior to that was a a just and needed renegotiation between the sexes of how, how we live together in the context of the immense technological changes which had taken place over the course of the industrial era in Britain taking work out of the home, Mm. which threw the balance of power between men and women radically out of whack. So suddenly you've got public-private, you've got male-female, and you've got a whole set of legacy beliefs and legal structures which effectively leave women radically disempowered and which in turn impelled the liberal feminist campaign for property ownership, for legal personhood, for for the vote and for all of those other things, you know, all of which was just and appropriate, but which in turn has created its own structural challenges, not least that it has a blind spot where motherhood is concerned, because legal personhood on the terms required under the, in the industrial era was structurally male mm. in a very deep way. And then against that, you have what I've called the feminism of care, which doesn't even read as feminism now because the winners wrote the history books and it was the feminism of freedom that won. And the immense body of writing during the 19th century, which set out to valorise the domain of care and the domestic, um, the so-called cult of domesticity, as liberal feminist historiographers call it, was really oriented towards ensuring that this newly privatised domestic domain was still valued, despite the Mm. fact that economic agency had trickled out of it and women had been demoted, really, from equal participants in a productive household to a sort of chief consumer in a private one where our roles had shrunk from being the transformer of raw goods into subsistence materials for the family into the chief buyer of stuff um, Mm. with somebody else's money and responsible for the moral education of children. And women said, well, you know, yes, this is a bit different, but it still matters, and here's why. And so both sides were right. And if you read the dialogue between these two polls, it's an incredibly rich debate with right on all sides. Um, It's a real back and forth between the polls of care and freedom, and it was only conclusively settled in favour of freedom by a tech transition which promised to flatten the central distinction between men and women, which is to say our reproductive roles, in that it became technologically possible for the first time to set women's fertility to off by default, and it became legal to end a pregnancy. 
and the power to set our fertility to off by default inaugurated what I've called the cyborg era, which is to say the transhumanist era. People accept that the pill really changed a great deal, but I don't think people recognize just how far Mm. and how much it changed in the sense that it shifted us from a medical paradigm in which we understood what normal was. And the role of medicine was to fix things that had gone wrong with normal. And and the arrival of the pill shifted us from that into a paradigm where where we were entitled to change normal as we saw fit in the name. pathologized it, right? Right. And a great many other developments since then followed downstream of that. This idea that the basic human normal is, should should we deem it such a problem to be solved? Um, I did a debate with an Australian transhumanist, Elise Bowen, um, a little while ago, and she said, there aren't very many female transhumanists. And I said, well, no, that's not actually true. To the extent that women embrace the contraceptive pill, you know, more women are transhumanists than not. You know, in fact, female transhumanists are so common that they just don't read as such. Well, here's where I need to come clean, because I take the pill, Mary, and you make the case that women shouldn't. So I'm fairly convinced by you, but I'm having trouble living up to my um, ideals now, as you might have had previously. But why do you feel that this is not a good idea, that women should say no to the pill? Let me start from a slightly different direction. I try and avoid getting bogged down in people's personal decisions. Um, But I would say rather that the pill is a bad metaphysic. To embrace that at a social level is to say that there's something fundamentally wrong with women's default reproductive state and that therefore women are kind of sick by default and can only be made healthy by a technological invention. Um, I dissent from this for the same reason as I think we should abolish liberalism before we abolish femaleness. I would contend that it's more feminist to question the idea that women are sick by default, just as it is more feminist to contest the idea that um, women are less capable of liberaling by default, or, or rather that we should respond to the idea that women are less capable of liberaling by default by abolishing liberalism rather than women. I would also acknowledge and honour the fact that at ground level, um, how we engage with technologies in each of our personal lives is, well, people's lives are complicated and theorising at the large scale and looking you in the eye and saying, I know what's best for you are two different moves. In the book, my target is more challenging the basic paradigms and and really challenging the maximalists. rather than challenging those people who weigh a difficult set of questions and then come down on one side or another with a measure of ambivalence. And I would extend that also into abortion, which I've also discussed in the book. And I've been accused by the liberal side of of being too anti-it, and I've also been accused by some on the conservative side of having pulled my punches, because in the end I've said I, I don't think the first policy move from where we are is to set out to try and ban it for the straightforward reason that social mores have shifted so much, particularly downstream of technologies such as the pill, that if we were to try and do that tomorrow, the result would not be, it would not be better for women. What I found really useful about your challenge to the pill is that it seemed to me that, like you said, I have just come to embrace these things and done so unthinkingly, I suppose. Mm. And it just seems to me that position is kind of continuous with a lot of other things that we shouldn't really feel all that happy about. Like, for example, um, you know, some billionaires want us to upload ourselves to the metaverse 
then you've got yeah, other billionaires yes. who want to colonize Mars, right? Like this Earth clearly has no more promise for any of us. And so, Yet another facet of normal that is a problem to be solved. Yeah, that's right. So I guess we're getting into this idea of contemporary Gnosticism that you that you talk mm. about in the book. And it's just really interesting that the pill, the Mars solution, the metaverse, all of these in their various ways, they're an escape from the body. They're an escape mm-hmm. from the material. Yeah. Yeah, Whereas the motherhood thing is intensely bodily, intensely rooted in place. Um it just seems to me that if we explored what a female understanding of the world could be, not to necessarily essentialize females as interdependent, full stop, but you know, like, but doing that would kind of lead us to a different place than this liberal experiment that we've been living. Yeah, I think so. And I'm in returning to the pill for a moment. I'll just offer one little anecdote from since the book came out. This this is from a, a friend of a friend, a young woman in her mid twenties. Who's, who's boyfriend, a long-term boyfriend, also the same age, mid-20s. And he's been sort of cruising in his adult life. You know, he's, he's, he has well-off parents and he's been living at home and dabbling in various arty pursuits. And they've been having a, having a nice time and not really knuckling down to anything much at all. She read the chapter on the pill and thought, well, that's of course, that's Mary's just wrong. That's completely impractical. And then she went away and thought about it for a bit. And then she talked about it with her boyfriend. She said, I'd like to come off the pill and I would not end a pregnancy if we had an accidental pregnancy. Apparently, he just lay there staring with a thousand yard stare for about an hour after that, you know, <laughs> talking about it in bed. And subsequent to that, he he's taking steps on the basis of that conversation to get on the housing ladder to find a more reliable source of income. And it's completely changed his approach to really to being an adult man, you know, because he's yeah. confronting for the first time the possibility that actually being an adult man comes with obligations. And I suppose I offer that as just one little tiny story for how just how profoundly um, a technology can tilt us in one direction or another in terms of the decisions that we make and in terms of the assumptions that we have. And I propose in the book a woman-led revolution against our chemical neutering, because I think given, given that it began with us, the revolution against it has to be led by us and... And it has to be voluntary. It has to be women's collective decision that actually, no, this isn't a kind of womanhood that we want, you know, the sort that leaves us neutered by default and that enables these really quite negative freedoms, you know, which often have deeply negative effects, you know, by proxy on the decision making of the young men that women are associating with because they're never obliged really to think through the consequences of the way they're relating to women. And they're able to remain in a sort of extended adolescence because they're getting what they want and it's contracepted, so it's effectively consequence-free. And so they're never, they're never really required to think through what it would take to be a man in the meaningful sense of having any obligations. And I think if we want better men, we have to return the consequences to being a man. And that's one way of approaching it. Um, by branding yourself a feminist against progress and being, in a way, pro-limit, I think you've carved out a space for conversation with more conservative ends of the spectrum. So I want to ask you, what might be the role of communities of faith in resisting progress as you've defined it? Well, communities of faith are pretty much the only place left to stand. I mean, if what we're looking at is a is a, a vision of progress, which is really about the sort of liquefaction of everything in the name of freedom, but actually in practice in the name of techno-capital then communities of faith are one of the few places left to stand with any kind of a coherent argument for why we maybe shouldn't be doing that. 
And, you know, I certainly think of Christian communities in that context, but not only Christian communities. There are people of other faiths who also have well-worked out metaphysical arguments against liquefying everything in the name of tech capital. I mean, <laughs> clearly. So to a great extent, communities of faith offer somewhere metaphysical to stand, which offers a robust set of reasons why we shouldn't be doing those things. But also, in as much as liquefaction of everything is really about, as I've called it, a war on relationships, you know, a war on the reasons we're connected to one another. Um, to belong to a community of faith is is the precise opposite of that. Um, and this is not to make the sort of Jordan Peterson style utilitarian argument for being a Christian or whatever. It's to say that this and so much more is available if you're willing to show up. And I think there's something profoundly important about being willing to show up. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Yes, and thank you, Mary. And I also want to thank Libby for letting me borrow her mother for a chat. The interview had to end because she needed her breakfast, so <laughs> that was good. Limits are good. Now, Mary's book is Feminism Against Progress, and I'll also post one or two essays that she's written if you'd like to check out more of her work. They are so meaty and interesting and provocative. And by the way, if you're still reeling from her comments about the pill, I understand, be sure to check out her essay in the UK Spectator that I'll post. It's basically a chapter out of her book and you get to hear from her in her own words why she thinks what she thinks. Please do leave us a rating or review. It helps get more people on board the life and faith juggernaut. Or do get in touch with us at podcast at publicchristianity.org. We really like to hear from you. And as always, thanks today to our producer, the peerless Alan Dowthwaite. Next week. I'm extremely intolerant of residents who complain about the call schedule. Like, you're a doctor taking care of the baby. Would you rather be the dad on the other side of the incubator or the cancer patient on the other bed or the doctor on this side who goes home and, you know, please, has the education, the money and everything? Mm.